I want you to picture in your mind a European tourist who has traveled to New York City to watch the inauguration of George Washington as the first president of the United States. It's April the 30th, 1789. It's a sunny spring day. Standing in the crowd in front of Federal Hall on Wall Street, you are witnessing the beginning of an experiment in governance unlike any in the history of the world. Four million people spread over 13 colonies from New England to Georgia have separated themselves from the world's greatest power. And they have come up with a new nation from scratch. If that's not enough, these Americans have chosen a democratic republic form of government. Now, we just kind of think that's the way it is these days, back then. <laughs> Such a form of government was widely thought of to be unworkable and unstable. When Washington became president, no country in continental Europe had a republic in which power resided in the citizens. I mean... How could these silly Americans realistically expect any commander-in-chief of the nation's armed forces to vacate office after a term? And then to have a Supreme Court with the power to strike down laws passed by the legislature and implemented by the executive branch? That, that's an unprecedented level of judicial independence. But most stunning of all, you are watching the first nation in the world make individual liberty into a governing creed. And later, our 16th president would lead us through a vicious and bloody civil war. At Gettysburg, Lincoln spoke about our nation experiencing a new birth, a new birth. That this country might be a place of new beginnings, a place of new hope, a place of new birth, which is still being worked out and which still needs to be worked out. It's remarkable. That said, this morning I want to talk about a better nation, a better freedom, a better hope, a better creation, the new creation in Christ. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Acts, chapter 9. We're in a teaching series through the New Testament book of Acts, and today we're going to look at someone who experienced a new birth, a new creation. The verses that we'll consider in Acts 9, 1 through 22, concerns Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul, and how he became a Christian. And I'll just let the apostle Paul give us the big idea, which is simply this. Anyone, anyone who follows Christ is a new creation. The old is dead. The new is alive. Anyone. Anyone. As we look at these verses throughout Acts chapter 9, we're going to see what 
Saul's life looked like when God invaded his life and changed him for Jesus. And these verses help us see what our lives need to look like when God works and births in us a new creation. Acts chapter 9, 1 through 22. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go! For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is God's word. Luke just jumps into these verses, almost assuming that we know who Saul or Paul was. Which is he, Saul or Paul? Yes, Saul of Tarsus, his Jewish name, Paul, his Gentile or Roman name. 
Luke tells us that Paul was breathing murder and threats. How did it get to this? Well, what's, what's his story? Well, I'll let Paul speak in his own words. Uh, jot down these scriptures. You, you can look them up later. Acts 22, verse 3. Paul said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. Now, that's on the uh, southeastern coast of what's modern-day Turkey. Tarsus in Cilicia, a province of the Roman Empire. But brought up in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Then in Acts 26.5, we read, Paul said, I have lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest party of our own religion. And then in Acts 26.11, he says, I punished Christians often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Those are Paul's own, own words. Born in Tarsus into a family of Pharisees. And the word Pharisee literally means separate ones. In other words, they're dedicated, disciplined, pious Hebrew. Uh, Paul happened to be a Roman citizen in the empire by birth through his family. We find that out in Acts 22. So he's born in Tarsus, which happened to be one of the three great university cities of the empire, surpassing, it was said, even Athens or Alexandria in intellectual eminence. His parents had the wherewithal uh, to pay for his education, even sending him to Jerusalem, think boarding school, where he was taught by the famous teacher Gamaliel. So Paul was highly educated, uh, he was competitive in nature. And there was a raging fury about him as he sought to stamp out this heretical sect called the way. The way. Now, what's behind that raging fury? Well, to Paul, Christianity was just, just false. Heretically false. Dangerously false. I mean, to say that God came in the flesh. To him, that was just blasphemy. To say that the meeting place between God and people, like the temple in Israel, could consist in human flesh, well, that's, that's sacrilegious. And furthermore, this Messiah that these Christians are worshiping, this in-the-flesh Messiah that these Christians are worshiping, was a crucified Messiah now, Paul was waiting for the Messiah. He was waiting for a Messiah who would come in power and overthrow the pagan nations like Rome and establish Israel as God's preeminent nation. Messiah would come, yes, but a crucified Messiah? Impossible. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, Cursed is anyone hung on a tree. God's word says this. And you want to worship a cursed man? This has to stop. And Paul honestly thought he was stamping out this dangerous, heretical sect. He felt it was his duty as a patriot. He saw himself as a lawman. Paul saw himself as the Wyatt Earp of Israel. And he's going to clean house. Galatians 1. 
13 and 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. Sense the competitiveness there? So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So that gets us to these verses in Acts 9, 1 and 2. Paul breathing murder and threats against the church. And apparently, Jerusalem wasn't enough. No. Some of the believers from Jerusalem fled as refugees to Damascus, about 140 miles north of the city. So the gospel has already gone beyond Judea and Samaria. Luke doesn't even tell us in Acts about how uh, the church was started in Damascus. We get to Acts chapter 9 and there's Christians in Damascus. The scattered church is planting gospel seeds wherever it goes. And Paul is ruthlessly and violently trying to stamp out an unquenchable flame. So Paul acquires letters from the high priest Caiaphas in order to show these synagogues in Damascus, give me names. I'm going to arrest these wayward followers of the way. They are threatening our nation and our temple and the faith of Abraham, and I'm going to put a stop to it. That's that. Now, in your outlines is the first question, who was Paul? Well, I've given you some facts about him, but let me tell you who, who he is in these verses. Paul is the most unlikely convert. That's who he is. He, he's the person that nobody else would expect to become a Christian. He's committed himself to such a path that to change his mind would be just totally humiliating. It, he would be risking his own life by converting. Church family, God's grace is not limited to those who come from good religious stock. And Christianity isn't for good people from good families and good neighborhoods with good jobs. Christianity isn't for the squeaky clean. Christianity, Christ, called the one who called himself the chief of sinners. Time magazine in December, December 17th, 1973, Time magazine I had these words. Of all the Watergate cast, few had a reputation for being tougher, wilier, nastier, or more tenaciously loyal to Richard Nixon than one-time presidential advisor Charles W. Colson. The very mention of his name made tension fall like sheets of rain throughout the White House. At the peak of his influence, he proudly boasted that his commitment to the re-election of the president was such that I would walk over my grandmother if necessary. That is what you call an unlikely convert. In fact, a few weeks later, uh, Colson was asked if he'd actually said those words, wondering if maybe Time Magazine was being unfair to him. And Colson said, those words that were quoted to me in Time Magazine were absolutely, positively accurate. An unlikely convert. 
Those names that are up on the wall on the other side of the worship center here that I ask you to place, there's just there's dozens and dozens of names and there's stories. And some of you have told me those stories. Church family, don't stop praying because you never know when God's mercy will come unexpectedly crashing in. You keep praying for your loved one. You keep praying for your family member. You keep praying for one that you may perceive as an enemy. You keep praying. You keep praying. Keep praying. As we continue with these verses, you, you see what I mean about God's grace coming unexpectedly. About 140 miles from Jerusalem, right outside of Damascus, right around noon, Paul is closing in on the city where he will ravage Christians and just outside the city, just outside the city, without warning, a brilliant, blinding flash of light hurls him to the ground. A voice, verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And Saul looked directly into the face and clearly heard words that wrecked his life. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting and by the way, this is why I believe that the account that we're reading is historical, because Luke is a minimalist here, right? There's no, there's no mystical, numinous, transcendental, trans. there's none of that, right? There's just a collision right outside of Damascus. Paul is on his way to the city. Blinding light strikes him head on. Paul drops. He sees Jesus. He hears Jesus. He doesn't know who this Lord is, but he knew it was the Lord. And this assertive, violent, furious Pharisee could not see to save his life. He's blind. And his deputies have to lead him by the hand into Damascus. Jesus cripples him. And right then, Paul learned something about himself. He who thought he was a friend of God was, in fact, an enemy of God. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is a chapter in the Old Testament that is a chapter that begins with blessings for obedience. And if you obey me, you'll be blessed. You obey me, you'll be blessed. God's saying this to his people and that's where Paul thought he was. Man, he thought he was just doing all of the right thing. And he thought he was blessed. But no, the back half of Deuteronomy 28, curses for disobedience. Deuteronomy 28, 28 and 29, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness and you shall not prosper in your ways. Paul learned he was no friend of God. He was God's enemy and he was blind and he was groping. And I want you to notice something else about these verses in Acts chapter 9. It's really important. Jesus did not invite Paul to be his follower. He didn't say, Paul, I'd like you to pray a prayer. 
I'd like you to invite me into your heart. None of that. None of that. And I do not say that to discount your experience or my experience. That's just not what happened here. And do you know why? Because Jesus is an imperialist. That's why. Jesus has invaded. And Jesus did not ask Paul. Jesus took him. You are mine. You belong to me. I am the Lord Jesus. I'm your Lord. You get up and go into the city. I will deal with you later. The acts of the apostles are, in fact, the unstoppable acts of the resurrected king. And this king scatters the church, his church, and they leave Jerusalem. And this king sends his servant leaders to unexpected places like Samaria in the north and desert places where they keep divine appointments with Ethiopians in the south and and here, this king, King Jesus, without consulting the apostles, conscripts one of his enemies. Jesus turns an enemy into an ambassador. Is your God capable of this? You know, one of the problems living in the land of the free is that we assume the freedom to make up whatever God we want. Paul thought he knew who God was. You know, God could never take on flesh, and God could never not need a bricks-and-mortar temple like in Jerusalem. And, and the, the God Paul believed in could never knock him to the ground because the God Paul believed in didn't have a reason to knock him to the ground. In other words, Paul had assumptions about who he thought God was, and then he acted and lived his life based on those assumptions, which included killing Christians. But on that Damascus road, he met the real God. And the real God won't budge. Now, we may not create the same kind of God that Paul did, but you know, you know in our country, we make up our own version. And it turns out to be nothing more than just a projection of our preferences, right? Well, the God I believe in just loves everyone and accepts everyone. And, you know, he's the frozen yogurt God. Right? Yeah. Well, Sarah and I for dessert will often go to one of two frozen yogurt places in town. And these are, these are the kinds where you can kind of get your own cup and you can get a small one or a real big one. And you, there's about, what, half a dozen Ten spouts, spigots, right? And you can just fill up whatever you want. Do you want a little dab of this, some of that? Do you want a little dab of that, some of that? Do you want some of that strawberry banana? You just leave the lever down. <laughs> oh, yeah. You want dairy-free? We'll get you dairy-free. Sugar-free? We'll get you. Sugar-free. You want gluten-free? You want flavor-free? Yeah, it's yours. Yeah, because this is America, right? This is America. And you don't, think that, you don't think that we don't do that with God? It's, it's every bit as much a, a projection of our personal preference. And the problem is this. When you fall... The God, the one you've constructed, cannot help you up. 
The God that you've constructed can't convert you, can't change you, can't challenge you, and can't comfort you, and cannot forgive you of your past. No. 1 John 3.20 says, Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. You know, some of us are, in fact, like Paul, the persecutor. But for years, we've been persecuting ourselves. Well, I, I could never forgive myself for my past. Listen, you can never forgive yourself. Well, stop worshiping yourself then. Listen, I, I love you. Listen, if you find yourself paralyzed, blinded, and crippled by guilt, the guilt that makes you feel like you're damaged goods, do you know what that means? It means that you're worshiping the wrong God. That's what that means. Because only the God who is greater than our hearts, only this God won't budge. Only this God can push back on you, can disagree with you, can tell you things you don't want to hear, and can love you when he knows everything about you. Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. What I'm trying to say, church family, is you need a God who is more than the sum of your preferences. You need a God who is both untamed terror and unlimited love. You need a king. And Paul, the unlikely convert, collides with the terrifying reality of the risen king. He made a power beyond his control. And think about what happens here. A commanding voice overwhelms him, blinds him, abandons him to darkness. He stumbles into town. He's sitting. He's fasting. He's waiting. What's he waiting for? He doesn't know. He's in solitary confinement. And while Paul was in solitary, Jesus then visits a Christian in Damascus by the name of Ananias. Now, not the Ananias of Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira, not him. That Ananias did not make it out of Acts chapter 5. But, but this Ananias is a good guy. This Ananias is a pious, devoted believer. This Ananias is living his life for the Lord and his family. And suddenly... The Lord comes to him in a vision, and Ananias, Lord, yes, Lord, get up, yes. Go to the street called Straight, of course. That was like Main Street in Damascus. Look for uh, the house of Judas, anything you say. There's a man from Tarsus, absolutely. His name is Saul. What? <laughs> Go see him. Lay your hands on him so he can see again. Yeah, but, 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 Lord, I, I don't know if you're aware of this or not. The almighty, ever-knowing, powerful king of the universe. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. But he's done evil against your saints. And I'm one of those saints. And he's come to here to do the same. And go, verse 15, just go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. This servant of mine is going to learn what real love is because real love always sacrifices. Love suffers. And 72 hours later, Paul hears a pastoral voice 
brother. Wow. Brother. Not killer. Not torturer. Not murderer. Brother. Brother Saul. Hands rest on his shoulders. Scales fall on his eyes. He's baptized. The Holy Spirit comes on him. He's fed and sheltered by the very community he'd gone there to kill. Only Jesus can do that. Who's Paul? Unlikely convert. Who's Jesus? He brings change. That's who he is. He's the king. Now, who are we? Who do we identify with in these verses? Well, many of us identify with Paul. And all of us should in some way. Because, you see, this is about conversion. And convert, conversion is about rewriting your autobiography. Uh, let me rephrase. Conversion is about God rewriting your biography. It's God's biography of your life. And, and God overwhelming your story and putting your story into his story. <laughs> listen, listen. God has no interest in improving your story because your story and my story, they don't end very well. But what he is very interested in is putting us in his story because it's a story of new birth, new life. For if anyone is in Christ, he or she's a new creation. The old is dead, the old is gone. Behold, all things are new. And conversion is about a changed life. An enemy of Christ who becomes a sufferer for Christ. <laughs> Look at verses 19 to 22. Paul looks like the very person he just had executed. Stephen. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? They're expecting Paul to get up in a service like this at the synagogue and I've got papers and I want names, but instead he's preaching Christ. Verse 22, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. That's conversion. Conversion, Lamansane wrote, is the turning of ourselves to God, and that means all of ourselves without leaving anything behind or outside. Lamansane, professor of religion at Yale. And someone might say, well, wait a minute. I mean, I didn't have a conversion experience like Saul's, so am I really a Christ follower? Well, first of all, if you didn't have a conversion experience like Saul, good. <laughs> His conversion was violent. It's, it's not about trying to replicate his dramatic encounter with Christ. It's not about having the most dramatic conversion experience that you can tell it, it, it's about the result 
So he says, don't focus on the process, focus on the fruit. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 17 and 20, every healthy tree bears good fruit, thus you will recognize them by their fruit. So, so Paul was a changed man. He, he was different. He spoke differently. He thought differently. He related differently. He was not the person he once was. So conversion is not, you know, just filling out a card or a silent prayer in your heart. Conversion is a rebellious brother coming home who was dead, but now he's alive. Conversion is when people say, you know, when you talk about your life before Christ, I can't imagine you ever being that way. Conversion is, I'm so amazed at what Christ has done in my life. How could I ever lose hope over someone else's life? And conversion is about being brought into a new community. Because conversion is not just vertical. It's horizontal in my relationships with others. And that leads us to Ananias. But what if we were a church family who, who worked through the initial fear that Ananias felt and, and obeyed the Lord and then went to the people in our lives, loving them, searching for them, coming alongside of them, calling them brother, laying hands on them. I mean, Ananias appears and then disappears. He enters, he shows up briefly, and then he goes off stage. But just in those few moments, he performs the function of a priest. He's a bridge. He mediates God's presence. He lays hands. He affirms. He feeds. He baptizes the very one who would become an apostle. What if we put away our fears and assumptions about those we think are hostile to the faith and heed Christ's word and take the gospel because the gospel story has the power of God to transform lives. And this is about someone who came alongside and believed when nobody else trusted him. And the difference that makes when someone says, you know, you may seem an unlikely convert from the world's point of view, but never from Jesus. There's, there is no unlikely convert in the eyes of Christ. There is no unlikely convert in the, in the eyes of Christ. Christ, who is acting in ways we can't possibly fathom, at any moment a breakthrough can occur. He moves, he overwhelms, he overrules Paul and others. And Paul experienced this. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is dead. The new is come and is alive. Paul realized that Jesus was, in fact, the royal Messiah. The crucified king, yes. He was crucified on a tree. He was cursed, but not for himself. He was cursed for us. He wasn't just knocked down on the ground. He was lifted up on the cross. He wasn't just in the darkness of blindness, but in the darkness of separation from his Holy Father. Jesus' mission was not to enter a city to take lives, but to go outside the city where he would give his own life for us. 
And at the temple, lambs had to be sacrificed continually. But there, the Lamb of God was sacrificed once and for all for the sin of the world. And through the weakness of the cross, God revealed his strength. And God raised this Jesus to life and vindicated him. In the resurrection, God said to the powers, you killed an innocent man, my son. I raised him from the dead. And now the Son of God has his hands on Paul. And this man is my chosen instrument. My chosen instrument. And you know an instrument is only as good as the skillful hands that play it, right? Beautiful instruments over here. They won't let me touch them. (laughs) Hmm. But we've already heard skillful hands. And Paul and us become instruments of the one who teach us that love is about sacrifice and suffering. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The old is dead. The new has come to life. Charles Colson, that White House hatchet man, wrote in his spiritual autobiography, Early that Friday morning, while I sat alone staring at the sea I loved, I prayed, Lord Jesus, I believe you. I commit my life to you. And this was the profane hatchet man of the Nixon administration. He wrote, that morning there came a sureness of mind that matched the depth of my heart. There came strength and serenity, a wonderful new assurance of life. I was coming alive to things I'd never seen before, as if God was filling the barren void, filling it to its brim with a whole new kind of awareness. It's called new birth. New birth. You know, some of you have been attending Windsor Road for quite some time. You've you've heard the gospel. You've heard. But you're still outside the city. Jesus has said, go into the city. You haven't stepped into the city. You're blind. You're groping. There's nothing but sand and gravel. Go into the city. Let someone help you. There's an Ananias waiting. Let someone pray for you. Let someone baptize you. What are you waiting for? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, dead. Behold, all things are new. Amen.